Okay, let's grab my water bottle, guidebook. Where's my Vodafone? I look around my tiny concrete dorm. I'm sharing it with three other girls from my study abroad semester in Prague. In comparison to the Rococo aesthetic of the rest of the city, this building was absolutely built during the communist years. Prague was like if someone took a handful of pastel crayons and stacked them next to each other. Each building was a different shade of pink, blue, yellow, green. It's a daydreamer's delight. But this building was nothing but a slab of concrete. Like if someone took one of those thick, smelly, king-size Sharpies and crossed through a Monet painting. I threw a few brols and yogurt into my bag. I thumbed down a page in the Rick Steves book and underlined, to my American tongue, an unpronounceable address. I snagged my keys and opened the door. Fortunately, the sound of Soul Sister playing for the 14th time this morning crowded out the sound of me shutting it. I wondered how long it would take them to notice I was gone. Probably a while. Stepping out into the cold winter air was refreshing. It was more than just that minty inhale you get like you snorted an Altoid. I heard the wheels and dings of Tram 22 glide past my building. I could take it, but I felt like walking. I started turning down Petron Hill. I paused at the expansive view of the red rooftops covered in white. Tips of the houses were peeking out under the snow, like a child's runny nose poking out under a wool blanket. The fresh air felt good for my mild hangover. But it wasn't because I was taking advantage of all of the cheap beer, but from talking too much. I had been in Prague for less than a week and had spent every waking moment with everyone else on my program. Each day was filled with activities that probably all the study abroad students do. Walks around the castle, stroll through the old town, day trips to Chesky Krumlov. Each day was planned out with people I didn't really know. I mean, I wasn't antisocial. I love making friends, and honestly, at that point in my life, I was dying to. I just spent my first year at college, and I wasn't settling in. I felt thrown into the ocean without a lifeboat, because everyone I had met, I had to explain who I was and what I was about. These were questions I didn't have answers to. See, I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and community was just built into my home. My town was so small, you never really met anyone. But having to explain who I was and what I was about was unnerving. Every day, I felt like I had to start anew. And I didn't really know who to hang out with. But, you know, it felt good to be wanted by anyone, honestly. Getting texts felt like a new currency. How many people messaged me showed me how valuable I was, how desired, but only to myself. I hated leaving class and seeing no notifications on my phone. I hated that weight, that anxious anticipation for a ding or vibration against your upper thigh to tell you that you were wanted. Then once I would get a text, I would open it like a birthday present, rushed like my fingers couldn't get to the app fast enough. Freshman year left me feeling so unsure of who my friends were and who I was. But I was constantly surrounding myself, addicted to thinking that I would finally find the right crew to make me feel part of something. 
make me feel safe in this college of chaos. But I was starting to feel worn down by the cycles, the gossip, the drama, the politics of friendships. All of that was being built within my grade like a new nation, and I didn't know where to cast my vote. But I didn't want to be left on the fringes either. And the only person I felt really connected to freshman year ended up transferring to FIT. She told me with the casualness of telling me her weekend plans. I felt this lurch in my stomach, like when my dad would drive down a country road too fast. I was scared to be without her. What if I just left? One day after a study abroad meeting with my advisor, I checked my phone. I saw that no one had messaged me, and I knew I wanted to get out. Maybe I would find the right people overseas. Maybe I'm not meant to be in America. Maybe everyone here will miss me once I'm gone. I looked up at the turquoise dome of St. Nicholas, a majestic Baroque church built before my country was an official nation. Something about its height and covering gave me the same comfort as walking through the backwoods of my childhood. I paused for a moment and stared at it. Its ocean blue top popped against the yellow and white buildings. Its top spire reached out like an antenna, trying to make contact with a higher being. Even in Europe's most atheist country, the Czechs knew how to make religion look good. As I continued on, I paused at a crossing, unsure of which direction to go in. Should I walk along the edge of the park? Cross Charles Bridge? Maybe go in stride with Tram 22. Let's go this way. As I continued to pass along these gorgeous buildings, I took note of every place I wanted to check out. This looks cool. This cafe looks good. Is this an art gallery? Oh my god, this store is filled with so many puppets. As I walked along the foot of Petron Hill, my thoughts slipped into last night. The loud underground pub, the ongoing conversations... The exhaustion. The night before, I sat at this long community-style table with my classmates, and a weariness came over me that I had never experienced before. I was so tired of talking, and waiting for others to make up their minds, and compromising, and feeling indecisive about my needs, and more talking. I'd been suction cupped to these individuals for a week and my brain was starting to freak out. There was a piece of me that wanted to run and be on my own and not have to pause or stop or wait for anyone else. Then I turned down a street with a name that sounds like a sneeze and it led me to an unpopulated bridge. Only hearing the white noise of the city was giving my brain a massage. I was finally able to rest and relax. It felt similar to these long, solitary bike rides I would take near my home in the Hudson Valley. It was my first taste of freedom. Being able to go where I wanted, when I wanted to, at my own pace, and not have to wait for anyone. My rides were driven more by my curiosity than my feet. I didn't understand why I had this sudden need to be alone when I finally got the built-in community that I was craving at school. After 45 minutes of navigating this cobblestone labyrinth on my own, I arrive at the Globe Cafe. 
I step inside, take a whiff of coffee and new book smell, and melt. Today on the episode, we're traveling alone. Travelers will explore the spectrum of states that happen when we go out on our own. From defanging loneliness to feeling empowered in solitude, we will talk to travelers who discuss what they are capable of when they travel alone. Get your journal out. We're going to talk about a lot of feelings. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. I'm not the only one who's used travel as an escape from themselves. When we're feeling lonely or uncertain, it's easy to surround ourselves with distractions. Constantly hanging out, being busy for the sake of busy, or endlessly scrolling on Facebook. We avoid stillness. Silence seems deafening. Because when you strip away the notifications, the texts and updates, you can finally hear yourself think. And they might not be the nicest of thoughts. Insecurities tease us. Doubt looks down on us. Regret bashes over us like a symbol. So it's easy to crowd them out with Netflix or Instagram or anything to make those loud voices shut the hell up. Sometimes our feelings can feel so big, we can geotag them. Type loneliness into Google Maps and your home pops up. But we blame our problems in our home and might not actually see where they live. So when these thoughts get too loud, sometimes we will do anything to get away from them, even leave the country. That's what Andrew McGill thought when he wasn't happy with where he was in life. When he was 24 and working in a humdrum law firm, Andrew saw his life endlessly buffering there, stuck like a rainbow spinner on a frozen Mac. Life was on but he was unable to use it. Last year, just graduated school, I was working at a law firm right out of college, and I was going to take my LSATs. And as I'm like, you know, a couple months passed, and I was kind of just like, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if I want to be a lawyer. When I figured out I wasn't going to do law or do law school, I, I was like, hey, maybe if I do teaching. So I was applying to these like different alternative certification like teaching programs. And I remember I got into the, like, the last stage of, I think it was like teaching fellows, and then I didn't get in. And I was like, you know what, that's the tipping point. I was like, you know what, it's not working out here, it's not going to work out here, so I'm, I'm just going to try in a different country. And just, like, just, I just needed a bail. I was like, I can't, I don't want to do this right now. But I, I applied to another teaching thing, and I got to the final round, and they were like, hey, we'll let you know in, in a couple months. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. I think I'm going to do this trip. So I put in my two weeks' notice. And the the day I put in my two weeks notice, I also booked like a month flight to Japan. I was like, yeah, I can do I can do a month out there, and like if if it doesn't work out, like I'll just I'll come back or not if I stay. And I just peace out. Andrew needed to go far, far away, but where would he go? Core. I think there's some correlation between like black teens and 
Japan, which is we just love it. Their culture, Dragon Ball Z, anime, all that shit is so cool. I definitely want to travel there and see what life is like. Because I was like, oh, I want to go to like the furthest place, like away from where I am. So he took the leap. But Andrew realized that the voices in his head did not stay in Brooklyn. They got on the plane with him and followed him on his journey. I think as soon as I got on the plane, and like it's a 14-hour flight, yeah, can't run away from these. <laughs> it's just like, I think you're going to get on the plane and everything's going to be great. And you're just like, nope, I'm same. I'm still angry, still very upset. We don't always know what we're getting ourselves into when we travel alone. Andrew realized that Japanese culture wasn't making him feel out of his element. It was the solitude that was a shock to his system. Yeah, one of the things that surprised me was how much you think when you're like alone, like you, like you, you overthink everything. But it's it's good because you're like analyzing things. You see. And I think it was cool because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm running away from myself and my problems. But like, wherever you go, there you are. So it's kind of just like, just because you're a shithead in New York City doesn't mean you're like a good guy in Japan. You're still the same person. So that was cool to just be like, oh, man, like be in my head to realize, oh, man, like you got to be cognizant of the type of person you are. And those are the kind of things, kind of things that you think about when you're like alone all the time and you're thinking and you're. The location didn't change the person that you are, so you kind of have to dictate who you are wherever you go. So, Andrew got the time and space that he needed, but there were other side effects to being on your own in a new space. You start to see things in a different way, and you get a little more... We get a lot more, like, independent. You get a lot more uh, responsible because you know that, like, oh, man, if I don't, like, do this, like this is if I don't wake up on time like this is gonna be or if I, like I need to know where my next train is it's, it's all on you you can't like rely on someone else you have to be that guy when we go on our own we gain this sense of independence but that does mean we have to do everything the responsibility can fall heavy on our shoulders booking bus tickets researching activities knowing where to eat not having a helper can often be freeing or frustrating it pushes us to become more self-reliant than before. I think it was like third week. Third week I was there, and I was just like fed up. I was like, fuck Japan. I fucking hate it here. I was like, this place fucking sucks. And I was sitting on this the roof, and like I had a Polaroid, and there's this photographer that he's famous for. Um, he goes to like these the seven wonders of the world, and he'll just like stick the middle finger in front of him. And they'll take a photo of him sticking the middle finger. And I was sitting on the roof and I was like, fuck Japan. And I like took a Polaroid photo of just me like putting the middle finger uh, to this random tower. I don't know, I was just fed up. I just didn't, didn't like it. I was like, I just want to go. I didn't want to go home, but I was like, I don't want to be there. And I remember I was walking through the, the streets and I, I don't know if I was low on money or just like didn't want to have anything but like for dinner I was like I'll just get some like crackers and cheese so I like had crackers and cheese for dinner and then I'm eating these crackers and I'm like yo fuck this man I'm like yo I'm in Japan I have money I'm not like I got money but like I got coins like I could eat more than crackers and cheese and I was like no fuck this like this is great like I'm gonna make the best of it and I kind of like got real dinner and kind of was just like okay this is 
I'm like, oh, I just maybe I was just hungry. Maybe that was it. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm, I don't hate this place. I was just deprived of food. I think it was just like didn't hear back from the the teaching thing that it was like supposed to, I was supposed to hear back from it didn't hear back and I was like I just I was like this sucks like I thought it was gonna work out and I was like ah, I kind of hate this place but that was I think that was the one the one time where I was like ah this sucks but yeah I just I guess it was everything else it wasn't the place that made me hate it it was like every the outside forces me dealing with all the crap that I was going through when we travel alone we start to talk to ourselves differently because we're the only ones to talk to. I mean, I mean I'm still trying to figure out because I still feel like very much in that position of just like I don't know what I'm doing. But I think it's like, hey, you're doing stuff. You're still you're still moving. Like I think whatever you put your mind to, you can you can do it and you can crush it. But uh, just believe in yourself. I don't know. Is that a thing? Yeah. I think biggest change is like just believe in yourself more and. Trust in God, trust in the process, trust, yeah, trust yourself. Andrew found that sitting with himself through the frustration and loneliness was the only way to alleviate these feelings. It's like getting a flu shot to prevent you from getting sick. Sometimes we need a small dose to build up our emotional antibodies. When I first started traveling, I didn't realize that my travels were actually fueled by my loneliness, not gasoline. So I wanted to explore the loneliness aspect because I think that's a reason why so many people are afraid to travel. So I wanted to talk to someone who is an expert on it and analyzes the topic from every angle. Julia Bainbridge is the host of the podcast, The Lonely Hour, and she examines loneliness from every angle. Loneliness is a mental thing, right? Loneliness has to do with perception. It's perceived isolations. Alone is a state. Like you can't dispute whether or not someone's alone if they're, you know, physically in a room by themselves. So that the actual show is sort of cataloging people's experiences with loneliness just to kind of better understand it, right? So it's still a word and a feeling around which there's this taboo. And I think I want to neutralize that by... Um, hearing, you know, really hearing people talk about it and all kinds of people. And, and I think over time, yeah, that, that neutralization of the taboo will help soften the blow of the feeling, which is an inevitable one because it's loneliness is part of the human condition. Julia found that because this phenomenon is so elusive, there's a lot of contradictory information around it, maybe because it's kind of scary to study. She pulls some of her thoughts and observations from Eric Kleinberg's op-ed in the New York Times that we don't necessarily have a loneliness epidemic as much as millions of people are suffering from social disconnection. And that, you know, scientists have said about repeated in-person interactions with the same people. That's why clubs, unions, church, you know, a lot of those things that have been breaking up have historically been so important to a feeling of, you know, community and, and strong sense of self, even through that joining of a group, you know, an identity. She's also influenced by the foremost thinker on loneliness, John Cacioppo. He was the director at the Center of Cognitive Neuroscience at the University of Chicago, also known as the father of loneliness. Chicago, he had been studying the effects and causes of loneliness for over 20 years. Um, 
he's like the foremost thinker on this. I don't know if you've heard that's like chronic loneliness is akin to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of how it affects your, you know, physical health and your, your life. That's actually John's research. He's really like the, the, the father of, uh, <laughs> of loneliness as a study, I guess, really. So anyway, to reference his work, he said that loneliness refers to the perception that one's social relationships are inadequate in light of one's preferences for social environments. So in his studies, for example, introverts show none of the health risk factors that married persons with perceived isolation showed. My take on it is that this identification of loneliness, it seems to wear on the body like doing backbreaking work. It has intertwined effects on our mental and physical state. In my own research, I listened to a Hidden Brain episode on male loneliness, which includes the story of a man who was in such dire need for physical contact that he would hug the pole to his staircase, like squeezing a wife excited for his return after a long day at work. We crave the brushing of elbows, picking off a hair on our shirt, as much as conversation. That's how nuanced yet necessary our social lives are for holistic health. And why we fear loneliness so much. It stings like the accidental scratching of a fingernail. So he believed loneliness, which he also calls social pain, is a kind of alarm signal and that it's nature's way of telling us to rejoin the group lest we compromise our health, right? Like which he and many others have showed is linked to feeling part of society, you know, that there are, there are real mental and physical health effects of like prolonged social isolation. So in a way, uh, you know, he would say loneliness has value in that way. Like our discomfort with solitary life is a survival instinct. Julia has played in all of these states with careful observation. When we recorded this interview, she was in the midst of a road trip across America to work on a drink book. As she drove from city to city, she stretched both sides of the solitude spectrum. Um, I really enjoyed this time on the road by myself. And while I was connecting with people all throughout the way, I had big periods of time where I was on my own. And um, while at times that was hard, it also was cool. I could say even from my own experience on this trip, it was so enriching to drive around all of these cities in this country to be able to connect with journalists on the ground, some of whom I'd met before at national conferences, but had never seen them on their home turfs. And so that was such a pleasure, like in person and making those connections but that's a whole lot of new people over the course of three months. And I really missed seeing my friends who know me deeply, you know, and interacting with them and through DMs or texts just does not cut it. As with all of us, Julia's awareness about loneliness has been earned only through trial and error. Although she studies this phenomenon, she isn't exempt from experiencing it. She tells me of a time she didn't see obvious warning signs. I mean, I'm sure I can think of more excruciating examples, but, but this one popped into my mind. It was a relatively young relationship, and it was the first trip that we were taking, you know, to get away as a couple. And it wasn't far. We drove to, like, Bovina, that area, and just, like, slept in a and b and, uh, you know, walked around in fields. This sounds like the beginning of a perfectly delightful trip. Julia and her boyfriend removed themselves from the distractions and stresses of home 
to focus on just each other. But travel illuminates parts of ourselves and others that we can't always see at home. I think things like the way he interacted with the staff at the place compared to the way I really like to engage, uh, almost kind of flirt with everyone, you know, (laughs) like to, I don't know, in, in a respectful way, just be effervescent. And he really wasn't putting forth that kind of effort. And I guess like my point is over the course of that weekend, I started realizing how different we were. And it just felt really lonely. Like I was, I was like, oh man, you know, you wake up next to this person, you share your body with this person and you're starting, you know, the beginning of the breakup started there. This person I thought I really liked, I'm not sure I do. For me, I think the way that played out is like, at that time I was what? 32 or something maybe. And I, I mean, Grant, I beat myself up a lot. You know, plenty of us are guilty of that. And I think my instinct is to say like, how at this age and after dating this many people, could you not have seen that sooner? It almost like makes me feel lonely from myself, my inability to have detected this. How are you in this deep? It was only a few months. So it wasn't that deep. As I said earlier, it was like, not um, as intense a relationship as, as some of the ones I've had in terms of time and commitment. But at some point, gotten to the point when I decided to call this person my boyfriend and introduce him to my friends and, you know, have these intimate moments together and then realizing I don't think I was quite right and who was the person making those decisions. And it can, it can, it can be confusing. And I feel like, yeah, I don't know. I can think of no other way to express it than I felt almost like lonely. I didn't know myself, and that's sort of the most lonely thing. It doesn't matter if you're in a room with a cactus or a hundred people. If you're lonely, you will feel it. Julia's gradual curiosity of this state is what eventually leads her to push through it. I certainly knew what I was in for by deciding to take these long drives alone. And I'm pretty, like for a woman who has a show about loneliness, I'm I'm pretty comfortable with, I don't know. I feel like I don't often get lonely. I, the show, despite the title being The Lonely Hour, is really about all corners of aloneness, right? So that includes solitude, which has, you know, which is something we seek, right? Like, I think alone, being alone as a state, lonely is, you know, a sadness over that state and solitude is sort of like the, the positive version, right? Like the me time, you know, that also has a positive connotation. So I got a lot of that. I really enjoyed because I also do some of my best thinking when I am moving and silent. So when I'm walking or, you know, this time around when I had my foot on the gas is when I come up with like leads or kickers for stories, when I'm working through the research I've just done and what makes sense to be in the book and what I should let go of, you know, coming up with a list of who I should follow up with. I mean, this wasn't just a a vacation, so it's not like, you know, there, there were things that required significant alone time for me to work through for the work. It wasn't like I was necessarily taking a break from life to get a reframe on how I'm living. And when I'm not traveling with someone else, I'm not there to spend time with them in part. I'm there to spend time with that city and the people of it, right? So I'm just like more open to whatever sort of comes my way and I'm, and I'm seeking interactions or magic or whatever else it is you discover, you know, when you travel 
I think that's the journey I'm on is to understand all this stuff. And perhaps I don't have answers. Like I think, you know, the show, I'm a listener of my show in a way, right? Like listening to others express their experiences helps me better understand my own. I'm looking less to quell loneliness than to understand how it operates and how it operates is constantly in a way. So I think that's something I kind of knew, but but it's been um, confirmed through my conversations with people because like, yes, loneliness exists in all of us. It's part of the mixed bag of emotions involved in the human experience like we talked about. And I think you can feel lonely at the same time that you feel supported by friends in the same way that some things are bittersweet, right? We can feel both sad and heart warmed simultaneously. Like humans are complex. (laughs) So I think we need to travel when it's right for us. And that doesn't always match up with other people's plans. Sometimes you have to go at your own speed. The right people will catch up with you when you honor your journey. And let's face it, there's so much flexibility to going at your own pace. You can speed up, stop, linger for as long as you want. You get to dial into your intuition to see what's calling you and not have to compromise with someone else's whims, needs, and bucket lists. Jose, from My Normal Gay Life, has always loved the freedom that comes along with traveling alone. Jose started traveling right after he got married to his husband, Alfred. For the first year, we traveled together. But then the second year, I started going by myself, and then I spent three months in Europe um, without him. I enjoy a lot of things about traveling alone. I enjoy that I don't have to wait for him, because he kind of takes his time sometimes, and getting ready in the morning or whatever. So that kind of annoys me. I like having the ability to choose what I'm going to do that day. So like yesterday, I spent the whole day in the hotel working. That was my choice. If he had been with me yesterday, we might have had to go and explore or something. So being able to set my own agenda is pretty great. Now, Jose is happily married and loves traveling with his husband. I love to travel with my husband, actually, like, for a number of reasons. I love him. Um, So we'll start with those really important parts of it. I love him. I think he's great. He's fun to be around. And, you know, he makes the adventure more fun. I also like traveling with him because he carries my bag and kind of does what I tell him when we're traveling. And and I need that. I need that. He basically becomes my assistant, my free assistant. Um, So so that's fun. Yeah. So... The solo travel was by necessity because um, he has a job and he has to work. So he can't just drop everything and go with me. But my job is to travel and to write about it and create content about travel. I can't do that unless I actually travel. So that means without help. But since his husband typically has to be location dependent, Jose has to travel for his job. And he's learned how to make traveling alone exciting, not lonely. I also find that when I travel alone, I meet people a lot easier than when I'm traveling with him. Because when I'm with Alfred, I'm with Alfred. We spend all our time together. Um, and I have no, there's no real necessity to reach out and meet people because I don't need to. But when I'm by myself, I'm like, I'm a very social person. So like, I need that human interaction. So I'll reach out um, and I'll use uh, different apps to find people or go to bars or whatever. So when I was in Spain, I had a, at the beginning I had a, three or four day layover in Barcelona because I bought really cheap tickets and got to Israel for $400. But I had to spend some time in Barcelona. So I reached out to the tourism board there 
And I was like, hey, let's do something since I'm here. And they're like, cool. So they organized for me to go on a gay history tour in Barcelona. And when I when I showed up, it was just me and the tour guide and one other guy who actually lives here in New York City. And he and I, we went on the tour together. And then we basically just latched onto each other and stayed together the whole time we were there. And it was awesome. We just, like, got... Well, we partied a lot at night and did a lot of sightseeing and stuff during the day. And actually, he and I went to a bar and we ended up meeting four expats and had sort of like a, a squad in Barcelona for the whole time we were there, too. And it just turned it felt like I lived there. It was just amazing. But I don't think I would have been so enthusiastic about connecting with this person because there would again there would be no reason for me to necessarily not that making friends isn't enough reason enough but when you're in a relationship and you're with them it's sort of you're with them yeah why do you think it's important to travel alone well i know from personal experience that traveling alone has really helped me open my eyes to myself when I'm walking through a city, and that's something I have to do, is walk through a city by myself. Even when I'm traveling with Alfred, I have to have time with the city. I need time for the city to hold me and, and love me for a bit, you know? So I, I, I need that. And when I'm traveling alone, that act, that's more possible. In fact, it's the only thing that's possible. It helps me see myself in a different perspective. I don't know that travel is addictive. I think adventure is addictive. And travel is a prime way to get that adventure. When we're comfortable doing things on our own, we're able to adapt to nearly anywhere. Also helps me see that, like, there's a lot of places in the world that I could live. And I think when I find this out, that tells me a lot about myself, too, as a person. Because it tells me, like, every city has its own personality and its own, like, attitude, so to speak. And if you can see yourself living in that city, then in some way there's a piece of your identity is part, is, is part of that city. So you learn more about yourself that way. Um, also, like just watch, meeting all these different people from different walks of life and then realizing that I identify with so many of them in such complex ways. Really, um, like, yeah, I think it comes to understanding myself. But half the time, that's understanding myself through other places and other people. And that's why it's important, I think. Traveling alone gives you a rock-solid assurance into who you are, no matter what point you stand on the planet. I think that this confidence is acquired fastest through travel, by those who choose to wander alone. It's built because you learn how to find adventure and make new friends on your own. I think it happens to me more when I travel solo because I'm seeking it out. I look for the adventure. I can't rely on a friend to hand it to me. I have a lovely habit of shamelessly chatting up taxicab drivers or coffee-drinking neighbors in cafes. And most people are very receptive to it. But I think that's because people are just as curious about me because I'm traveling alone, especially as a woman. What is she doing here, all by herself? Now, there seems to be a gendered split around traveling alone. Where men are usually trusted to be able to face the challenges that come with going solo, women are still given a side eye. So I'm going to use the term women, but have scripted it with an X. From my understanding, this means to include any body that is affected by misogyny or women-related issues. Although most of us have a specific form of gender identification, the way the world treats us might be ubiquitous. 
So, when women say they're traveling alone, a lot of the times we get the response that we're just going to eat, pray, love our way around the world, which for some reason is a mild insult. An eye roll of, oh, you found yourself in Tulum, that's so great. But what Elizabeth Gilbert does in that book is that she explains what it's like for women to step out of their traditional narrative. It's a story that's written for us the moment our sex is identifiable in an ultrasound picture. Since humans began building civilizations, the reasons women traveled was to be wives, slaves, or concubines. And to be honest, during certain points of history, those were all synonyms. Women have been a movable piece to bridge communities of men or satisfy male desires. Historically, women have never traveled for themselves. Absolutely, there are anomalies, but women have never been able to travel with full agency, driven by their own desires to see the world or themselves. But that is starting to change. More women are starting to trek out on their own, not shaded by the shadow of a man beside them, not even with other girlfriends, completely on their own. Women's travels aren't being compromised by someone else's plans or wallets. Traveling alone allows women to invest differently, more intentionally in themselves. That's how Kate from Adventurous Kate has been traveling all along. Also, I did my first solo trip ever because I knew I wanted to travel around the world solo, but I was like, well, you know, you've never actually traveled solo. You should find out if you like it. So I decided to go to Buenos Aires for Thanksgiving one year because there were some really cheap rates from Boston. I did that. I spent a week. I made so many friends, stayed at a hostel, had a couple romances, and realized, yeah, I love this. I can do this. This is awesome. Traditionally, women are the ones who carry everyone else's baggage. Their parents, siblings, husbands, and children's emotions. They are a heart that beats for others. When women travel alone, they're responsible for carrying their own emotional baggage. This gives us a freedom to examine what we want out of life instead of what's expected of us. And the expectations around the female narrative are more constrictive than our male counterparts due to our biological disposition. But just because we can make babies doesn't mean that we're called to have them. When women of this day and age go solo, we are exercising an independence that our grandmothers couldn't have dreamed of. I'm someone who has always been comfortable with doing things alone, much more so than most people. Mm-hmm. I found it very easy to make friends when I was on the backpacker trail, staying in hostels, going to the backpacker bars. It was so easy meeting people that way. Yeah. One thing I like that? to say is sit at the bar with a glass of champagne and you immediately become the most interesting person in the room. What's her deal? What's she celebrating? However, the world isn't always welcoming to us. Still in America, it still isn't common at all for a woman to travel solo. There's so much fear-mongering in the U.S., much more than in Europe or in South Africa or in Australia and New Zealand. It's one of many factors. There are many, many factors why Americans don't travel as much, but I think the fear-mongering that takes place is one of the biggest, particularly for women. Yeah. The, The strangest microaggression I ever got was from this guy my friend was dating at the time. He looked at me and said, What'll you do if the Khmer Rouge rises again? I was like, are you fucking serious? 
the Khmer Rouge is not going to rise again. Well, I would say that would be like the Nazis rising again, but, you know, we have a lot of Nazis in America in 2018. And I can't tell you how many times in Thailand I was traveling in areas that were pretty far off the beaten path, and all the women would come up to me and then their kids would come and translate, why you no have boyfriend? I would just smile and say, I have no boyfriend. I like to travel alone. I am happy. And then sometimes they would say, he is happy you no have boyfriend. And they would point to another man back there and he would be waving at me with a smile. And I would just laugh at that. Because at that. Or sometimes, you know, some, when I was in Lebanon, actually, I was talking to a woman and her son, and they didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Arabic, but they kept showing me all these pictures, I think, of the woman's other son, of him doing all of these, well, you know, these dramatic Arabic men poses, you know, in, in front of his car, looking off into the distance, super serious, in front of the ocean with a goatee, with his lips perfectly pursed. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to marry your son, but thank you for sharing these photos with me. Women are questioned in ways that men are not. Little comments blotch our experience, like entry and exit stamps. You're traveling alone? Shouldn't you wait till you have a boyfriend? Don't you know that's dangerous? Isn't that really irresponsible? Are you a- From defanging loneliness will you have time to, have to feeling empowered in solitude, Why are we you will married? talk to travelers who discuss what they are capable of extent, when they travel I understand alone. where these fears come from. The risks for women are different. There's a chance that we could be taken and abused, given that we've been disposable bodies for centuries. The story of being kidnapped and raped has been embedded in the psyche of girls from a young age. But when we look at the data, women are more likely to be abused by their partners and people that they know, not a stranger. I think this story was created in order to keep women at home. Oh, the dangers out there are much worse for you. You shouldn't risk it. It keeps us close and in our place. Continue to serve others instead of serving ourselves. But when we go out and travel, women often find that the world is much kinder to us than the stories we hear at home. I don't think it's very predatory at all. Pretty much the worst things that I've noticed tend to be a culture of catcalling or of men observing that they own the space and they don't want women to infringe on their space, so they try to make themselves feel big, feel important. But for the most part, I felt very protected, very welcome, even in places that you wouldn't expect. In fact, one of the most respectful places for women I've ever traveled was Lebanon. Whoa! That surprised me a lot. I even followed all the directions that my friends had given me for taking the public bus, more of like a mini bus. They said sit near the front, near the driver, first two rows, don't sit next to a man, sit next to a woman. Well, at one point, the bus was so full that a man had to sit next to me. It was the only spot, but he left a good six inch berth between us, so we didn't even touch accidentally. That was probably the single most surprising thing about yeah. Lebanon, how I felt respected and protected and didn't get so much as catcalled there. Other than one guy on a, on a bicycle who rode by and kissed his lips at me, and I was like, oh man, we were so close to perfect! <laughs> of course that has to happen! <laughs> right as I was thinking about how wonderful Lebanon is, but come on. One teeny, teeny, tiny incident. Right. I, I get worse than that, just walking home from the subway in New York. Preach. But I went to that specifically because before my trip, there was zero information online about traveling Lebanon as a woman, on your own. 
So I went there. I tried to hit up most of the biggest travel spots in the country. I made sure to travel by public transportation, by organized day trip, and by hiring a driver, which I did with Uber, not by a traditional hiring of a driver, right. just so I could have a good idea of what all the aspects of travel in Lebanon were like. And I have to say, almost everywhere I've ever traveled, my parents have ended up being pleasantly surprised by how easy of a time I had and how safe it is. In fact, one place that my mom was particularly worried about was Antarctica, where I went this past March. I'm not so sure. I was like, Mom, it's a cruise ship. It's nothing to be scared of. And she was very nervous. And even right before I left, she was like, do you really have to go, Kate? But by the time I came back, she was like, wow, I think I would like to do this trip. Women who travel on our own disrupt the narrative of what we're expected to do. And if you want to be a mom or a wife, that's totally fine and wonderful. But it has to be your conscious choice, not someone else's preference. We are the first generation of women to truly go out and test our strength. Kate recognizes the incredible privilege she's had to go travel as far and wide as she's able to. It's something that I think of constantly. And it's something that I think everyone should think of constantly. And I think that'll make you a better person, more patient, more polite. I can tell you the time that it hit me the hardest, my privilege. I was staying in Dondet in the 4,000 Islands in Laos, and it's a very, very cheap area, one of the cheapest places I've ever visited, and I was staying in this little guest house with a bungalow for like maybe three bucks a night or something like that, and as usual, I was going to get my laundry done. And in Southeast Asia, there are laundry ladies everywhere, so you just drop off your laundry, pick it up, pay a few bucks, and that's it. And one of the girls who worked at the guest house was doing my laundry and she and then I realized she was doing the laundry in a baby pool right in the yard in front of everyone and I just froze because I thought to myself she's washing my period panties this teenage girl is washing my bloody underwear with her hands and just like my my chest tightened and it went through my whole body and I just felt so many feelings at once just hating that she was in that situation, hating myself for being so dumb as to bleed over my underwear and to force that situation on her. I, you know, I, until then I had simply dropped off the laundry and picked it up. I hadn't thought of the actual process of the people who were washing my dirty clothes. It's made me be more mindful of what I'm seeing and I think it's helped me be a kinder person to everyone that I meet. Yeah, that's the most important thing. Doesn't matter if you're cool, it matters if you're kind. I'm zoning out in class. My school in Prague is at the Charles University. It's in a building so archaic that even Europeans say that's old. It's like walking through someone's fortress in Game of Thrones. However, I'm sitting in the god seat. Out the window, I have a view of Prague Castle and all of its glory. My vantage point perfectly frames the four tiers spiraling upwards, trying to reach the heavens. I wonder, how many birds have fallen casualty to them over the centuries? Once class is dismissed, I walk through this wide stone arches and open hallways, down the stairs through the grand entrance of the building. 
This place makes my school back in the States look like a prison. I stepped outside into a warm spring evening and I take in the little park that sits between the university and the stately music hall, which rests along the Voltava River. My dorm is on the other side of the bridge, tucked away behind the castle. I make my way to the river and begin to walk down one of the bridges, a less ostentatious one than the cherished Charles Bridge, but way less touristy. And at this time of day, Charles Bridge is congested like a nose during allergy season, and this was before selfie sticks were invented. I begin to walk over the less inhabited bridge to the beat of my own feet. An April wind passes over the bridge, reminding my body what it feels like to be warm again. Spring is coming. I pause to stare at the Charles Bridge. The giant stoic statues of monks hover over the pedestrians who walk across. They can see all your sins as you walk by. The sides of the bridge are littered with artists and their easels, painting everything from Van Gogh facsimiles to cheesy caricatures of celebrities. A soft sound wave blows its way over to my bridge. An orchestral quartet plays Bohemian Rhapsody. The city's reflection glitters in the water. The orange and red rooftops splinter like a broken mirror. I pause. My heart hurts a little bit. I never imagined a world like this could exist. But it wasn't just the scenery. It was the fact that I was doing it. I felt this little twinge of my own existence. I keep walking, and I make my way to the other side. For whatever reason, I just decide to turn left. I'd grown accustomed to these long walks back to my dorm. Although it was just a 30-minute jaunt, it would often take me hours. My internal compass always knew how to get me back somehow. And this is where I would find the secrets. The tucked-away bakery, the bookstore under a bridge, or a quiet street lined with pastel houses and locals watering their plants. This city would open itself up to me organically, no tour guide or book would have given me the same pleasure as finding it on my own. I started to crave these little walks like candy, these moments of solitude and wander. This feeling was too good to compromise for company. As I turn left along the cobblestone street, a large wall begins to block out the sun. The road starts to curve and the wall opens up to a giant archway. Huh, what is this? I stand at the entrance and poke my head in, and I notice that there's no guard stopping me. A few other people are strolling around. I poke around this garden with the columns and hedges and well-trimmed lawns. I keep walking around until I see something, something else move. It's not human. Oh my god, what is this doing here? It's a peacock. Just chilling. Another and another and they're all they're all pecking at the ground, just doing their thing. It's like a, I think it's a group of females because all their colors are muted. And then on a ledge in the distance, 
I see one of the males, and he's well peacocking with all of his flashy feathers splayed out like a Chinese fan. Oh my god, this is so cool. I look back and see that the entrance isn't too far behind me. These little fellows could just go, like whenever. Why are they staying? What's keeping them here? I slowly creep up to one of them as close as I can and stare at its feet. I can see how they're related to dinosaurs. Their feet are scaly and end with a sharp talon, which are now evolutionarily useless since their food comes in bags. The peacock, in its majesty, looks back at me. It stares, and I stare, and I stand amazed by its existence and then my own. My heart hurts again. I don't know if I would have found them if I was walking with someone else. I might have missed the entrance if someone else's thoughts were breaking the silence, told me to turn the other way. The more I walked alone, the more my intuition was shaped. I was able to see where the city was calling me to be that day, which always led to an adventure. The turns I was making were mine alone. I would rather be alone than be with the wrong people. Knowing how to sit with yourself, unadulterated by sadness, is one of the biggest internal challenges we face, which I find to be strange given that I'm probably the person I talk to the most. So I need these conversations to be kind, reasonable, authentic, not to bring on more suffering. When I'm alone, I can dial into the strongest, clearest channels to my needs, my dreams, and myself. I still get lonely from time to time, but that fear of solitude fueled my travels, but unexpectedly is what cured my loneliness. I now need large swaths of time and silence in order to feel centered. No job, no partner, nothing can tumble me or redirect me because I now have an unshakable confidence as to who I am. But having someone else bear witness to your travels is just as rich as traveling alone. On our next episode, we're traveling together. We will talk to travelers who choose to bring a buddy along and how travel affects the dynamics of friendships. Will we deepen our relationships or dissolve them? Find out next time on Strangers Abroad.